another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series for the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast, where we try to untangle the messy practice that is Mormon plural marriage. If this is your first time uh, tuning in, go back to episode one on Year of Polygamy. This series is meant to go in order, and I would highly recommend it. I've heard stories of people just kind of starting in the middle which is great. I'm happy to have you. But if you really want to understand and contextualize what we're going to be talking about, it's it's really helpful if you start at the beginning. So today we're talking about the development and the doctrine of the family. And I want you to kind of understand and contextualize how family rhetoric in the church kind of evolves from this practice. It's heavily influenced. And I'm going to be pulling a lot from uh church historian Richard Van Wagner's book, Mormon Polygamy, especially the chapter on Mormon women. So I would highly recommend that you buy that. That that book is a great sort of concise uh, book doing what we are doing on this series that goes through the practice of Mormon polygamy. Uh, Leonard, church historian Leonard Arrington says in his book, The Mormon Experience, that like other Americans and Western Europeans, 19th century Mormons believed in romantic love. He says, quote, if there was any important difference in Mormon romantic love, it was in the religious context. At least the devout were anxious to find partners who were equally committed to the restored gospel. Sometimes after the enunciation of the doctrine that human beings had existed as spirits prior to their birth, it became fairly common to think that one special one and only had been known in the pre-existence when a covenant or promise had been made. A novel by Nephi Anderson was called Added Upon, written in 1898, and the more recent musical Saturday's Warrior in 1975 have popularized the idea, and it has become a Mormon version of the standard literary device of bringing family members back together after amnesia or a lapse of time. Patriarchal blessings promised many young Mormons that if they were faithful, they would find and marry the choice spirit they had known in the pre-existence. The idea received some discouragement from church leaders who considered it too fatalistic, and the church never has held that all marriages were of this type. In the popular lore, the idea, when it cropped up, served mainly to give religious overtones to the common conception of one and only. And we see this, the idea of one and only is certainly not a Mormon idea, but even I, I was married in 2002, and our temple sealer told my husband and I in the sealing room that he had felt impressed to tell us that we had chosen each other in the pre-existence. And when that happened, the whole room kind of lit up and everyone started crying and everyone knew it was a confirmation that we were meant to be together. So this idea was going around before, but it's certainly a romantic idea. Um, one that you found each other, you know, before we came to earth. And, you know, and then you forgot about it, and then you found each other. What could be more romantic than that? For any active contemporary Latter-day Saint, we know uh, that this doctrine exists, right? And we know that um, it sort of 
is contextualized in this hardworking man and this gentle woman, and they find themselves together again, and then they start a family. And we also know that in the church, the position of the woman in the home is primarily built around home and hearth. And I'm not going to go off and argue this case. I think it's well argued on this podcast in general, the position and the women's roles in the church. But regardless of the rhetoric being used, whether we say nurturing or serving as a helpmate, etc., the rhetoric has changed over time. But the basic idea is that a woman is considered to have this sort of divine, predestined, righteous calling as a wife and a mother. And a man is supposed to honor and um, uphold his priesthood. These are not new. These were given to us early on. We see in 1893, the Young Women's Journal contains this sort of article written by a pseudonym entitled, The Wife I Want. And it set forth a whole list of virtues that uh, women could aspire to. And I'm going to link to it. You can go to Keep a Pitchin and see the list in its entirety. The writer Garkun outlined his ideal wife in the article, and it was published in the December 1893 issue of the Young Women's Journal and was later responded to. So we'll talk about the response. But his list said, when I marry my desires to find a woman possessing as many as possible of the following characteristics, she should be so virtuous as to live not only above reproach, but above suspicion. She should be religious, yet not sanctimonious. She should be honest, truthful, and candid, yet not considered a hypocrisy to refrain from telling people all that she may think or hear about them that is disagreeable. She should be kind and attentive to all people, but reserve her sweetest smiles and kindest acts for me. She should avoid every word or act that is likely to arouse my very jealous disposition, yet not live in constant fear of my anger. She should love children and never consider them nuisances or wish them dead, and yet not be so indulgent as to allow them to grow up in idleness, disobedience, or sin. She should make her home so pleasant that angels will delight to make it their abode, and the family may consider it one place on earth where a foretaste of heaven is obtained. Yet she should not make herself a slave to the home, but move around in the world and improve mankind by her noble life. She should never turn the hungry, naked, or poor away from her door unprovided, yet she should not encourage begging or pauperism by misapplied charity. She should be careful and economical, yet not selfish nor stingy. She should be clean and tidy in her person and dress, yet not so prim as to be obnoxious. Her house should be clean and orderly, yet not so neat that muddy feet will bring frowns to her brow or crosswords to her lips. She should find some time each day for intellectual culture, even though this may make early rising necessary, and to her physical health she should give due attention. She should encourage rather than deter me in the performance of ecclesiastical and other duties, yet not for the reason that my room is better than my company. She should be free from ridicule for my faults, yet show them to me that I may strive to overcome the same. She should be willing to bear adversity without murmuring, as she enjoys prosperity without pride. She should manifest a contented spirit, feeling thankful for what she enjoys, rather than to find fault because she sees others enjoy that which she does not possess. She should not be filled with a forgiving spirit towards all people, yet not be a fawning sycophant. She should be neither boastful, 
haughty, nor complaining. She should determine that the income shall exceed the expenditure, yet should not desire to hold the purse strings in her hands unless I become financially incapable. I should be the one man on earth who she is constantly studying and trying to please, and for whom she is willing to forsake kindred, home, country, and everything except God and what pertains to celestial glory. If I could obtain a wife possessing these qualities, I would certainly feel assured that she would bear with my numerous imperfections and would lead me to grander conceptions of life here and hereafter, thus making me more fruitful in noble deeds. Then the journal editor writes, Girls, the writer who hides under this pen name is a handsome, gifted, eloquent, magnetic, and fascinating. If he is not one of the chief authorities of the church, he is very near kin to one. Now who of all of you can fill these many requirements which he portrays for the woman of his love? End quote. So it's not unlike, that just reminds me of the, like, the sort of attitudes that we get like from boys at BYU who send letters to girls saying, this is what you should be. This is an ideal wom woman. And a year later, a response was written in 1894, um, and the response was published in the Women's Journal. Sorry, the response was published in the Contributor in March, and um, it was basically the same thing but reversed the model husband. So I'll give you... I'll give you some quotes. It said, If I ever marry, which I hope to do someday, I will wish for a man possessing as many as possible of the following characteristics. Perhaps, however, men will be as scarce as the gold of Ophir before I have an opportunity to wed in which I, in which event I suppose they will be so noble as to be above criticism. I would like him to be a good parentage, for each mankind, as with animals, much depends on his stock. He should honor his parents and love the Lord with all his heart. I will then be able to fearlessly follow wherever he may lead. I desire him, if possible, to be good outward form, but more particularly to be pure and upright in spirit, as these qualities will make a person beautiful and attractive. Whatever may be his peculiarities of form or feature, I desire him to be industrious, methodical, and prompt in the performance of all his duties, but never to be so much occupied that he cannot spend some portion of his time in conversation with myself and our children, if God blesses us by the bestowal of such gifts. I desire him to consider me his helpmate, and not a slave. Thus he will take me about with his business, that when the cares of life burden his soul, I may be allowed to help carry the load as... In his prosperity and blessings, I expect to share the joy. I desire him to give me a monthly allowance, such as he can afford for personal use and household expenses, so that I may not be taunted by him with the words, It's money, 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 wherever, whenever I come in the house. I hope to have some wisdom about expenditures, and not be required to ask for my lord for every nickel I need, or to render an account for every dime I expend. I want him to help make a home, whether the place of abode be a hovel or a palace. The way to assist in this is by his making his cheerful presence felt there as often and as much as his duties will permit. I want him to reprove me kindly for my mistakes and shortcomings, but not to compare me with other women either dead or alive whose qualifications may excel my own. He should not torture me by even appearing to take more delight in the society of other women than myself. Plural marriage... Not being now possible, he should not waste his time or try my soul by flirting with other females. His character and actions should be such as he would delight to see reproduced in his children. He should 
be faithful in the gospel, courageous in spirit, wise in leadership, just in decision, kind in reproof, industrious in work and study, and truthful continually. I want him to be proud of me and not feel ashamed to introduce me in all society where he goes with his wife. I would not... I would like him to be charitable in considering my failings, and when I give offense, offer me kind reproof, but never treat me with silent contempt. I will admire him, though it may sometimes cause me disappointment, if he will steadily and unswervingly pursue the path of duty, attending with fidelity and promptness to every requirement of his religious office. I desire that he should speak to me kind words of encouragement, to show that he appreciates my efforts to please him and not everything in a matter-of-fact way as though it was exactly what he should receive. Even if he is worthy of my deepest thoughts and most devoted labors to please and comfort him, he might occasionally express a word of praise. I want him to be the head of the household, directing the footsteps of myself and family towards the goal and future and eternal glory of exaltation, where I hope we may be found worthy to dwell in the presence of our Maker. So... That was published a year after. Now, it's funny because, to me, I don't think that rhetoric is much different in the church than what we hear now. I think we could actually see that printed, and a lot of people would say, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good to me. Um, And I also think that this was printed in 1893 and then in 1894, which was right after the manifesto that ended polygamy in 1890. So you can see people are sort of experimenting with these new ideas of marriage. But even after the article in 1893, the the wife I want, some women were upset. One young lady wrote in to the editor and said, the husband I would not have is the man who wrote the wife I want. But mostly the editorial got overwhelming support. But even then there were women that said, yeah, that, no, that's, that's not for me. Uh, and it's good to know because we're going to talk about... Mormon feminists, who were sort of the first wave Mormon feminists, they're going to come up because Mormon feminism and plural marriage are deeply entwined. So we'll talk about that. Um, let's talk about what it was like to live in plural marriage and what the marital expectations were. Now, contemporary lenses of polygamy, as well as sensationalized national perspectives, from the 19th century, sort of view plural marriage as a largely sexual Mormon harem dominated by lascivious males with hyperactive libidos. We like to say it was about the sex, but the truth was, as Richard Van Wagner points out, it was essentially a puritanical Mormon marriage system. Now remember, this is Victorian American, and these were Mormons who have very strict sexual uh, lifestyles. And I just want to give a hat tip to Andrew Hamilton and Joe Geisner for alerting me to a Carmen Hardy essay. And we're going to talk more in depth about that, that later. But the essay is called Regeneration Now and Evermore. And Heber C. Kimball has some great quotes about these puritanical views of sex. And same with Orson Hyde. Apostle Orson Hyde warned both monogamous and polygamous Mormons in 1857 that shortened lifespans and puny, quote, puny, helpless, scrubby children resulted from parents who exhausted themselves through sexual indulgences beyond what was needed for conception. So if you had puny, uh, scrawny children, it, you were having too much sex. Apostle Erastus Snow censured an audience in St. George, Utah for, quote, bringing on premature decay and early death by the too frequent use of sexual intercourse. Sexual relations with barren wives were also considered, considered sinful and unhealthful. So if you were barren, 
your husband was not really supposed to be with you because that was considered lustful. Heber C. Kimball chastised church members for continuing to cohabitate with partners who could not conceive, for they were thereby living, quote, in the spirit of adultery. Such men should, quote, take a course to regenerate, not degenerate, Kimball promised. And he told parents that, on the other hand, when conjugal relations were undertaken to have children, that their offspring would be mighty and godlike. And I think that's interesting because the last episode we just talked about Heber C. Kimball. He has over 40 wives. And this might give you some insight into his thinking. Of course, we have him talking later on about how, you know, save some of the prettiest wives for him. But he is saying, listen, it's only for children. And, you know, Brigham Young has this sort of paradoxical sort of quotes on this idea too. He would say when he first heard of the principle, he desired the grave. And then he goes on to have over 50 wives. Um, John Taylor would say that on accepting his second wife, he quote, I had always entertained strict ideas of virtue. And I felt as a married man that this was to me an appalling thing to do. Nothing but a knowledge of God and the revelations of God could have induced me to embrace such a principle as this. We the twelve seemed to put off as far as we could what might be termed the evil day. End quote. So we we hear this. We When these men were first introduced to it, it offended their victi- Victorian sensibilities usually. Um, but later on, as we see in the development of these quotes that these prophets and these men will say, they're saying that monogamy is sinful and it's supposed to bring about the lust of to put off the lust of man and things like that though there were puritan victorian norms established church historian richard van wagner claims that there were some occasions of older men quote making fools of themselves over young girls there were no established rules in courtship at the time and it provided a really strange platform for a lot of messy behaviors as everyone tried to figure out this practice so there weren't like established courting rituals. They were trying to mirror Victorian rituals and kind of introduce this new polygamous doctrine. Um, Van Wagner also claims that plural wives lived very similarly to other women of the frontier. And he argues that they were, quote, not exploited for their income earning capacity as trade people or factory workers. So he's saying, look, hey, at least um, they weren't exploited. They were hard workers, but they weren't exploited for that work which is arguable, and I think a low bar. But he goes on to say that 88% of the women worked in the home and as a good thing. So he's saying they weren't in factories, they were working in the home. And I think that sort of undercuts and downplays the hard, hard life of frontier homesteading. But to him, that was a, to Van Wagner, that's a sign of, look, at least they're not in the factories. Women benefited from sharing responsibility, so it wasn't all drudgery. If the women lived under the same roof, they, it would be beneficial in some ways and probably more difficult in other ways. Jacob Hamblin um, had two wives, and you can read about this in Todd Compton's award-winning biography of Jacob Hamblin, A Frontier Life. He talks about Jacob Hamblin's two wives, Rachel and Sarah Priscilla, who I am related to. These two lived under the same house, and they kind of seem like the exception, not the rule, because they seemed to get along really well, and they loved and supported each other. 
And sometimes they would even scheme together to make J- to get Jacob to do things. Like one time he promised the younger Sarah Priscilla if she made him his favorite meal, she would get something. What she got was fabric for both of the wives to make themselves a nice dress. And they kind of had planned that in advance to get him to do what they wanted. Rachel was bedridden often as a first wife. And so they brought on the much younger Sarah who was already working in the home as kind of the hired help. And it, you know, family lore goes on to say that, uh, when Jacob wanted to marry her, she was 16 and, and Rachel said, maybe she's too young. And Jacob said, well, let's ask her for herself. What do you think? And Rachel said, yeah, I really like her, but I think she's too young. So they ask her and she agrees to it. And then Sarah Priscilla says, I love Rachel the rest of my life. And they really show it. Uh, Sarah would raise all of Rachel's children, as well as Jacob's adopted Indian children and the children he inherited from the Mountain Meadows Massacre. This, to me, seems like the most ideal arrangement that I have found so far of plural marriage. These women get along. They chose each other. They were asked about it. They were consulted. They lived together, and they really, really relied on each other and had a genuine sister-wife relationship. They would still have to share Jacob's time, and he was often gone. I mean, he was gone the majority of the time. So that would be really difficult, but since they lived together, it was easier to split time. If women were spread out, they had to split their husband's time and be split, you know, split apart. So it kind of, it could sometimes fraction that even more. However, if the husband was gone on missions and he placed his wife strategically in places like Heber did where he would go, then the wives felt like they had a monogamous husband for some time. Either way, it was a sort of tricky, messy thing of sharing their husband's time. Mormons argued at the time that this principle benefited both men and women by allowing men to have their lust satiated, and it allowed more women to become mothers. Although there's an essay in The Persistence of Polygamy, I believe, that points out that polygamous unions actually produced less children than monogamous ones did. And although polygamy defenders claimed it wasn't about the sex, it should be pointed out that the majority of the unions were older men married to younger wives. And this was based on a 1987 study completed by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at BYU. And it found that 60% of 224 plural wives in their sample were under the age of 20. So 60% were under the age of 20. So a man would usually be in his early 20s when he married his first wife, and she would usually be in her late teens, maybe just a couple years younger than him. When this man would take on a second wife, he was, on average, usually in his 30s, and the new wife would be between 17 and 19 years of age. Men with a third wife were generally in their late 30s, and the average age of a third wife and a fourth wife was 19. And the average age of a man taking a fourth wife was usually 45. This might not have been sexual. This might had to do with the practicality of it, the stamina and the health of earlier wives. As Brigham Young once said, once he got tired with, out with one wife, he'd swap them for a fresher one. The reality, like in Hamlin's case, was that he married Sarah Priscilla Levitt in large part because his wife needed help. She was bedridden and sick, and it really worked out for their family. So sometimes these women weren't considered actual wives. They were considered sort of, I don't know, surrogate uh, 
housekeepers in some instances. And remember, at the time, not everyone was living the principle. Uh, still, though, in frontier Utah, this arrangement, plural marriage, was considered the ideal, the model family. It afforded status and privilege to men and women. Brigham Young was quoted in the Desert News on November 14, 1855, saying, quote, If any of you will deny the plurality of wives and continue to do so, I promise that you will be damned, end quote. So you got to understand from 1856 to 1857, it, it's known as the Mormon Reformation. I don't know why in my other podcast I was editing it and I said Reformation. I don't know if it's, are you filming these too late at night or whatever, but those two years were the Mormon Reformation. And um, this is the time, those two years would be when polygamy is, people are most committed to the principle. Uh, scholar Stanley Ivins noted that in this period, 65% of all polygamous marriages were contracted. And in, this is in any, more than any other period in Mormon history. The Mormon Refor Reformation is when it happened. And Wilford Woodruff w was reported as saying, quote, All are trying to get wives until there is hardly a girl 14 years old in Utah, but what is married or just going to be. End quote. One Mormon woman remarked in her journal that, quote, this was the greatest time for marrying I ever knew. So we've talked a bit in earlier episodes about divorces, and some scholars have argued that plural marriages were just as unhappy as monogamous ones of the day were. And I, I think that's doubtful. George S. Tanner, who was a prominent Utah educator and a polygamous son, said, quote, I doubt there was a woman in the church who was in any way connected with polygamy who was not heartsick. They would not admit it in public because of their loyalty to the church and their brothers and sisters. The women try to be brave, but no woman is able to share a husband whom she loves with one or more other women. Only a few of the women involved in polygamy asked for a divorce simply because it was not a popular thing to do, end quote. And notice that he says... Women tried to be brave, but she struggled if it was a man she loved. And that's a key word. If women didn't love their husbands or didn't have a sort of romantic affection, the principle seemed a lot easier on them. So even though we talk about the frequency of divorces in some of the podcasts, I still want you to keep in mind that it was incredibly taboo to use divorce. It was still considered shameful. Ms. Mrs. Hubert Howe Bancroft was a prominent writer and visitor of Salt Lake City in 1880, and she said that Mormon women were really good at maintaining appearances, and that they viewed plural marriage as, quote, a religious duty and schooled themselves and others, that it was not a trial, and that long life of such discipline makes a trial lighter, end quote. So in other words, she said, the longer you did it, the thicker your skin got, or at least that's what the women would tell each other. So when a young girl would struggle, they would say, don't worry. Once you get old and wise like us, you'll be so used to it, it won't bother you as much. Sadie Johnson would say, quote, If anyone in this world thinks plural marriage is not a trial, they are wrong. The Lord said he would have a tried people, end quote. quote. And then we have her sister wife, Becky Jacobson, saying, quote, I want to testify that I have been happy and blessed as a polygamous wife. Any sacrifice we made for each other was rewarded tenfold. We learn to worship together, sorrow together, play and rejoice together. 
to unselfishly pool our resources for the good of the family, end quote. Ada and Vady Hart were two sister wives often embedded in this sort of conflict and jealousy over sharing their husband. But they would say that those feelings were, quote, the work of the devil who is trying to destroy the Lord's work, end quote. So when they felt jealous, they would fast and pray and try to get the right spirit again. They really believed that Satan was bringing those feelings and that this was sort of making them better. Generally, journals and letters of primary, from primary accounts, so like someone writing in their own journal, uh, did not write very kind words about polygamy. We see the struggle, we see the heartache. But if you read second and third hand accounts from relatives and family histories and things like that, as time goes on, the practice becomes sort of softened and smoothed over and it becomes this great noble thing. And the struggles are sort of erased because it was taboo to talk first about sexuality and marriage or jealousy in marriage or your weaknesses. We had to put on our best faces. So if you read family histories, often the struggles are erased. But if you read journals, they kind of tell a different story. Also, public testimonials and, you know, uh, publicity and first-hand accounts and, and pamphlets were usually glowing testimonials because they realized that the eyes of the world were on them and they were persecuted for this practice. This, this term is called storybook polygamy by Van Wagner. And he goes on to say in his chapter, he gives some great examples. So this shows the paradox of women who publicly advocated for practices. So Emmeline B. Wells, she's one of our favorite famous, favorite, uh, first wave feminists. She was one that did this. And same with Martha H. Cannon. These women were prominent in fee- in the female leadership and the first, and were first wave feminists. These women advocated for the vote because they wanted to vote for polygamy. And we're going to talk about this more when we talk about the Edmunds Tucker Act and all of that. But suffrage was, was, so largely influenced by polygamy. Polygamy is actually a huge tool in getting women the vote, both in Utah and nationwide. And we'll talk about that later. But I will say that if you read Emmeline B. Wells' work publicly on the subject, she writes very strongly worded arguments for the practice. Privately was a different matter. Publicly, she would say in the women's exponent that plural marriage was, quote, gives women the highest opportunities for self-development, exercise of judgment, and arouses latent faculties making them more truly cultivated in the actual realities of life, more independent in thought and mind, noble and unselfish, end quote. So that's what she was publishing. Polygamy is good. It cultivates you. It makes you stronger. Privately, it was heartbreaking. She would talk about her very unhappy marriage to her husband, Daniel, in her diary. In an entry dated September 30th, 1874, she writes, quote, Oh, if my husband could only love me even a little and not seem to be perfectly indifferent to any sensation of that kind. He cannot know the craving of my nature. He is surrounded with love on every side, and I am cast out. Oh, my poor aching heart, when shall it rest its burden only on the Lord? Every other avenue seems closed against me." So she says, look, he doesn't even know what craving is. He doesn't know what loneliness is. He's always surrounded by love. And yet I'm the one that has to bear the burden of loneliness. On their 20th anniversary, she would write in her diary, quote, Anniversary of my marriage with President Wells. 
Oh, how happy I was then, how much pleasure I anticipated, and how changed, alas, are things since that time. How few thoughts I had then have ever been realized. How much sorrow I have known in place of joy I looked forward to, end quote. And it was said that it wasn't until she was 62 years old and he was 76 that he finally began to pay more attention to her. And she would write about how his love all of a sudden had intensified to her years and years later. Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon, she was a distinguished woman and married to a powerful family. And also she was a 27-year-old resident physician in the Deseret Hospital and the first female state senator in the United States. That's our girl, Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon. She was also the third plural wife of 50-year-old Angus Cannon. Her husband was one of the guys that was facing arrest in the late 19th century for polygamy. And so he was, you know, on the run and living undercover and things like that. So she describes her marriage as, quote, a few stolen interviews, thoroughly tinctured with the dread of discovery, end quote. She would also write these terribly sad entries in her journal that polygamy would be unendurable if not for the knowledge that God wanted it. She said that even with that knowledge, quote, grounded in one's heart, we do not escape trials and temptations grievous at times in their nature, end quote. And this is like Paula Harleen Kelly says in her book, The Polygamous Writing Club, that the theme amongst every woman that she saw was almost without exception. Uh, polygamy is hard. It almost killed me, but I believe it was from God. And here we see this in Martha Hughes Cannon's journals as well. She, she would yearn for an exclusive relationship, and she was really jealous of her monogamous friends. She would see them, and she would write about how lucky they had it. And she would lament in letters to her husband. There was a letter written December 30th, 1891. And she said, A husband of my own because he is my own. A father for my children whom they know by association. And all the little auxiliaries that make life worth living. Will they ever be enjoyed by the storm-tossed exile? Or must life thus drift and one more victim swell the ranks of the great unsatisfied? End quote. I love that, the great unsatisfied. I think that that would explain a lot of frontier women's experience with plural marriage. She would also yearn for him. She made the mistake of caring for her husband, of wanting him. She wrote in a letter that she, quote, would rather spend one hour in your society than a whole lifetime with any other man. She yearned for him. Zina D. Young would lament that the only way to survive the practice of plural marriage was to detach yourself from your husband. She said, quote, Much of the unhappiness found in polygamous families is due to the women themselves. They expect too much attention from the husband, and because they do not get it, or see a little attention bestowed upon one of the other wives, they become sullen and morose and permit their, their ill temper to finally find vent. She would also say that the successful ingredient for a plural marriage was indifference and with no other feeling than the reverence to your husband. For love we regard as a false sentiment, a feeling which ha should have no existence in polygamy. So Zina de Young, who is married to Brigham Young, didn't always feel that way, and we'll talk about that in a little while. But as she got older, she said, listen, love 
has no place in polygamy. But Martha Hughes Cannon couldn't deal with indifference. She really struggled with indifference. She wanted her husband. She once wrote angrily in her in a letter to him, How do you think I feel when I meet you driving another plural wife about in a glittering carriage in broad daylight? I am entirely out of money borrowing to pay some old standing debts. I want our fares speedily and absolutely adjusted. After all my sacrifice and loss, you treat me like a dog and parade others before my eyes. I will not stand for it. End quote. She would complain to him about money and needing money, but then sometimes she would beg and she would, and she would say that she preferred just a morsel of his time over any money he would send her. Now, these women were struggling with this and it was a, you know, it was considered the ideal, but you have to remember a lot of people were still monogamous in frontier Utah. Prominent Lehigh settler Isaac Goodwin is quoted in Van Wagner's Mormon polygamy as testifying his love for monogamy. And he brings up a good point. He says, quote, I have a kingdom of my own without polygamy. This old lady, seven children and 33 grandchildren I believe in the doctrine for those who like it, but God never required it of me. Matrimony is a straight and narrow path. I like to go it alone. Now you have a plummet down from the wall and let it drop between two women. Each of them will say it swings a little nearer the other one than towards her. I might be straight up and down like that plummet. And though the women might say anything, both of them would think I was leaning the wrong way from her. So much for two women. Now hang yourself a plummet in a circle of a half a dozen, and then you can make some calculation what kind of time you would have through life, end quote. So he was saying that women um, with a man, it didn't matter if you were perfectly even and equal to the women, they would always think that you were swinging the other way. You were giving the other woman a little bit more attention. Goodwin would be rare in his sort of criticism for plural marriage. Although many men didn't want it, Mormon males had incredible pressure to live polygamously. If you live in the Utah corridor, you can kind of understand this pressure in Utah wards where the culture is really set on the status of getting a calling, the status of being a bishop. Um, it means a lot to a lot of people. And it was similar sometimes with even more grave consequences when John, Joseph Smith was said to ask John Taylor to take plural wives, Taylor hesitated, and Smith actually threatened him. He said, Elder Taylor, have you concluded to enter into that principle and observe the counsel that you have received? And John Taylor told him, well, I was thinking about it very seriously. And Joseph replied, quote, unless that principle is observed and acted upon, you can proceed no further with the full fellowship of God, end quote. So this became a thing. I mean, we see this right now. We're seeing a lot of women disciplined for, you know, for supporting feminist causes or ordination of women, and they're being threatened, you know, their sort of covenants or their temple recommend. Picture, picture that sort of pressure, but even more so um, with, with these men taking on women. It was said that they could not move up in the hierarchy or go higher than a bishop or an elder without taking a plural wife. So if you had any aspirations, any sort of theocratic political aspirations, you couldn't get there if you didn't have a plural wife because they really believed it was tied to your priesthood. Wilford Woodruff claimed that many of those men, quote, wanted, that many of those men wanted to advance to the higher law, but their wives wouldn't let them. He would say, quote, 
Any man her, who permits a woman to lead him and bind him down is but little account in the church of the kingdom of God. End quote. So Wilford was saying, listen, if you can't stand up to your wife, then we don't even want you because you're of little account in the kingdom of God. When federal pressure increased in the 1880s, then President John Taylor would begin to heavily pressure monogamous. He called monogamous Seymour B. Young to the Council of the Seventy, and he said, listen, I'll call you to the Council of the Seventy, but first you have to conform to the law. And he said, my law. He said, quote, it is not meet that men who will not abide in my law shall preside over my priesthood. He would then preach to the Twelve that Joseph Smith told him that if you couldn't live the law Heavenly Father lived by, which was polygamy, you had no right to be with Heavenly Father. And you certainly had no right to preside over someone who kept the higher law. So if you couldn't have polygamy, if you weren't going to step up and be a polygamist, you had no right to be in a position of authority or power over someone that did. Some men were even threatened with excommunication and the loss of their current wife in the afterlife to more obedient men who were polygamous if they didn't fall in line. So let's say you got called and you said, listen, I really just, polygamy is not going to work for me. They would say, okay, well, you're going to lose your wife. And by the way, in heaven, she's going to marry brother so-and-so down the street who is willing to take on this calling. Brigham Young reportedly visited Paris, Idaho in 1873 and said that, quote, a man who did not have but one wife in the resurrection, that woman will not be his, but taken from him and given to another, end quote. Apostle Francis Lyman remarked in 1883 that, quote, celestial marriage is for the fullness of the glory of God. It is the crowning glory. A man has no right to one wife unless he is worthy of two. There is no provision made for those who have had the chance and opportunity and have disregarded that law. Men who disregard the law are in the same situation as if they broke any other law. They are transgressors, end quote. And you can find all that in Mormon Polygamy, page 97. The prophet and president John Taylor would also say that if you rejected polygamy as a man, you would have eternal loss. Mariner W. Merrill called Andrew L. Heyer in 1880 to preside over the 70s quorum in Richmond, Utah, but he told him you have to take a second wife first. Heyer did not want to do this, but he later changed his mind after Merrill threatened to cut him off from the church. The first presidency, which at the time was John Taylor, George Q. Cannon, and Joseph F. Smith, taught that no man was entitled to preside without abiding this law. You couldn't preside unless you were a polygamist. Men were very limited, both in theocratic politics and spiritual and eternal progression. But they weren't the only ones that had pressure. Women who denied the practices were shamed and publicly condemned for refusing to follow counsel. Ellen Clausen wrote to a friend in the late 1850s that, quote, Some of the brethren here have to take more wives, whether they want to, very bad, or not. And Brother Heber C. Kimball said those that haven't but one, he rules and makes so much fun of them that they are shamed and get out, get another as quickly as they can. So there wasn't only eternal and spiritual pressure, there was a huge social pressure. You weren't considered a man if you couldn't handle just one wife. 
Brigham Young was said to have said in 1856, quote, Let the father be the head of the family, and let the wives and the children say amen to what he says, and be subject to his dictates, instead of their dictating the man, instead of trying to govern them. So he lumps the women in with the children and says, You listen to him like you would your dad, and you don't dictate to him. Speaking of Young, Mary Ann Angel Young, who was Brigham's second wife, she was said to be very obedient and not a complainer because Brigham Young did not like complainers, especially women that complained. But she did remark to a friend once, God will be very cruel if he does not give us poor women adequate compensation for the trials we have endured in polygamy, end quote. We'll talk about Brigham's reported favorite wife soon. Her name was Amelia Folsom, and he built Amelia's palace for her, which we'll also talk about. But before he brought on Amelia, he had another favorite. Her name was Emmeline Free Young, and she was a favorite for many years. And Marianne Angel says that Emmeline Young struggled with, quote, torments of the damned over being replaced by the much younger and more beautiful Amelia. A friend once asked Marianne's daughter, if her mother was bothered by the practice of plural marriage. And she she said to her friend, quote, Mother does not care. She is past being grieved by his conduct. But on the other hand, it gives her most intense satisfaction to see Emmeline suffer as she does. She can understand now what mother had to undergo in the past years. In fact, all the women are glad that Emmeline is getting her turn at last, end quote. So all these women of Brigham's, you know, Brigham's wives were so excited to see Emmeline Free struggle because she was a favorite for so long. And when she was replaced by Amelia, it was terrible for her. And all the other women were, as she, as his daughter says, intensely satisfied to see her suffer because now she would know how they felt when she came in. Zina D. Young who was also married to Joseph Smith, and I talked about her earlier where she said you have to be detached and not love your husband. She would also speak about how great polygamy was, but privately she also felt differently. Years before she makes that statement about feeling only indifference, a woman came to her and was heavily struggling with a principle herself, and she asked Zina, listen, is there something wrong with me? Because I can't stand it. It's so hard. What am I doing wrong? And Zina replied, quote, Sister, you are not to blame. Neither are you the only woman who is suffering torments on account of polygamy. There are women in this very house, meaning Brigham Young's house, whose hearts are full of hell. And in that room right now is a woman who has been in a perfect fury ever since brother Brigham Young married sister Amelia Folsom. Brigham Young dare not enter the room or she would tear his eyes out. It is a system that is to blame for it, but we must try and be as patient as we can, end quote. Van Wagner also tells the story of Phoebe Woodruff. She was the first plural, she was a first wife, sorry, the first wife to Wilford Woodruff, and she would bear testimony publicly. She would say, she said to a large group of people, if I am proud of anything in this world, it is that I accepted the principle of plural marriage, and goes on to talk about how she's still a Latter-day Saint. She's so proud of it. And it, as she, you know, says that and steps down, someone says to her, how did your feelings change so drastically? Because, you know, she, Phoebe Woodruff was known to hate the principle. And she was quoted as saying, quote, I have not changed. I loathe the unclean thing with all the strength of my nature. But sister, I have suffered all that a woman can endure. 
I am old and helpless, and would rather stand up anywhere and say anything commanded of me than to be turned out of my home in my old age, which I should most assuredly do if I refuse to obey counsel. End quote. So, Brigham Young had sort of contradictory statements about the utility of plural marriage. We talk about a lot about, you know, the lust sort of satiating the, the desire that monogamous men were robbed of. Um, but in July of 14th, 1855, he, he spoke to a Mormon audience and he said, God never introduced the patriarchal order of marriage with a view to please man in his carnal desires or to punish females for anything which they had done. But he introduced it for the express purpose of raising up his name, a royal priesthood, a peculiar people. End quote. And that's in Journal of Discourses uh, 3, uh, number 266. Now that's interesting. I just want to point out something. He says it wasn't to punish women for something they had done. You have to remember Brigham Young really believed in this doctrine of sort of predestination. And that's why blacks couldn't have priesthood because they were fence-sitters in the pre-existence. And so they were cursed with the curse of Cain. So... I'm sure the question came up often, what did women do to be in this state? And he said, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with how they were in the preexistence. It's just to bring souls and to make us peculiar. And this really shapes our doctrine of family. I don't think we connect it now, but it really does. To help curtail the emotional trauma that polygamy inflicted on the people, the leaders really started to begin to encourage the women to focus on their children and in many cases, they had to. Now, it was really, really rough if you were a polygamous woman and you didn't have children. Because if this is the purpose and you don't have children, then what is your purpose, right? That was a really rough thing. Unless you're Eliza Snow and you're in a position of power and you can go out and do all of these things. But they really encouraged, this is where we really start to see a lot of rhetoric of focusing around this sort of cult of childhood in, in Mormonism. Family would start to evolve and become a really important part of Mormon theology. I mean, we saw that already in Nauvoo, you know, Joseph's sort of, you know, messing around with these sealing practices. And as early as 1845 in Nauvoo, family organizations happened. The Young and Richards family reunion was first held in Nauvoo in 1845 and continued long into the future. Historian D. Michael Quinn argues that because plural marriage complicated and vastly expanded family lines, these organizations were a way of offering psychological security, sort of like we learned in the Heber C. Kimball episode that talked about Heber's sons and their closeness. These family reunions began to demonstrate that influential families kind of promoted a kind of dynasticism in the hierarchy of the church. And it wasn't just for um, influential families like the canons, Snows, Smiths, or Youngs, you know, the, the Mormon royalty. To this day, family reunions and organizations are a really strong tradition in Mormon culture. They're not exceptional to Mormon culture, but they are very, very strong. And this is why, because your family became sort of your dynasty. Aside from parental responsibilities, the cult of children began to develop in Mormonism. Um, Arrington, Leonard Arrington claims that early saints were inspired by biblical obligations. You know, the scripture, blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, meaning children. Remember, back in the 19th century, America, living on the frontier, sons and daughters meant additional manpower 
for chores and planting and helping around the house. So it was really a convenient thing. You know, in modern days, children can be seen as like an economical burden sometimes, but back in the, you know, frontier, they were an economical benefit. Having more children also meant the likelihood of having more living children survive. You know, infant mortality rates for the colonial America were said to be 10 to 30% not surviving past the first year. But the infant mortality rate in the frontier jumped to 25 to 30%. It was hard. It was really, really hard. I'm going to read you an excerpt about daily life in the frontier. And this comes from the book Daily Life in the 19th Century American Frontier by Mary Ellen Jones. She talks about you know, medicine and how these people coped and how they dealt with things. But she she says something I think that is very interesting. She says, these illnesses were not only physical. Repeatedly, homesteaders mentioned feelings dwarfed by the immensity of the plains, the sense of insignificance coupled with the brutally hard work, poverty, and loneliness made many declare like Maggie Brown, quote, I would give five years of my life if... I had never seen this state, meaning Colorado, end quote. Men were not exempt from this depression. Howard Rood wrote, quote, If there's anything I hate, it is to have to work alone without a human being or animal in sight. Occasionally, this loneliness blossomed into full-blown insanity, as is described in the, the old Rolfgab novel, Giants in the Earth. The character Barrett grew, quote, more sober, more locked up within herself, with a heavy heart all of the time in her bosom. Grace Fairchild describes, quote, One of our neighbors who lost his mind and his wife kept busy carrying coal from one side of the basement to the other day after day. So she's talking about the frontier, what a lonely, lonely, depressed sort of place it was. And you can imagine as a plural wife with your husband gone, sister, if you, if you were lucky enough to live with your sister wife, that would be another adult to talk to, which would be good. But oftentimes, as in the case we see with like John D. Lee's wife, there were so many competing interests these were not women you trusted to talk to. And it was it was super, super lonely. And depression abounds. We see that a lot in some of the plural wives of Joseph Smith's in their lives that that, you know, it was a lonely place. Um many popular ballads bemoan the early death of young women and in the quote safe territories of Dakota, Nebraska, Utah, and Washington. Women's death rates in 1859 to 1860 were 22% higher than those of men, even after taking into account violent deaths, wherein in the eastern states, the death rate was about the same for both sexes. Um, I hope I'm saying this right, but pure pearl fever frequent, frequently resulted from unsanitary conditions during childbirth. And even though there were no fatal complications, if the child presented in breech position, there was little anyone could do. And sometimes to speed up the slow delivery, attendants held a quill of snuff to the mother's nose with the idea that she sneezed, it would bring forth the child. So everything was rugged. It was rudimentary. Of course, sister wives started to become really gifted and skilled midwives. But you can imagine the sort of the sort of loneliness that would eat at you, the depression, the the conditions, the death that would surround you. In a lot of ways, it's a really depressing way to live. And you have to, as as we develop this sort of cult of childhood, 
you have to develop a system that encourages people to really value their children. And if you can't do it through love, which the prophets tried, they also did it through a threat of condemnation. We have scriptural ob- obligations placing parents under condemnation for their sins as early as the 1831 revelation that announced that if Mormon parents did not teach their children the principles of faith and repentance, the sins they might commit were, quote, upon the heads of the parents. And a later verse added, quote, and they also shall teach their children to pray and walk uprightly before the Lord. These scriptures are still reiterated today in contemporary and religious settings. And so you have prophets starting to really lay on thick. The children, do not let your posterity fail. And they would talk about how this is your responsibility. This is why you're in this marriage. This is what it's about. It's important. So as early as 1860, we sort of see the first examples of, quote, family home evenings. The family of Daniel Wood would hold meetings with his very large family to instruct them. Charles E. Pearson, who was an adopted son, kept minutes of these meetings, and he would often write poems and songs to use in them. The following poem was sung to the tune of Marching to Georgia. He wrote, quote, Come all my young companions, let's go to Brother Woods, for he's going to have a meeting to teach us what is good, and we'll be here to hear what he'll make us all rejoice, and be learned to make our lives useful. Hurrah, hurrah, come let us all be going. Hurrah, hurrah, for meeting time is coming. And we will always go when we can get the chance. God bless Brother Wood forever. End quote. And in particular, this certain Brother Wood would invite folks from the neighborhood to these meetings. And they were actually considered an early form of a youth association, according to Leonard Arrington. You know, contemporary Mormons today still tie their church membership heavily and their, their LDS experience heavily to attending church in the meeting house. We have this whole idea of active or inactive Mormons based on your attendance. Um, and you just can't separate that. But it wasn't always that way. In early frontier Utah, such meeting houses were a really rare luxury. And the further away you got from big towns like Salt Lake or St. George, um, especially in the 1850s and sometimes the 60s, the less likely you were to gather at a formal meeting place. And so meetings and preachings happened in people's homes. They happened in people's yards. It was it was not as formal as it is now. And if you had a man that was, you know, a good priesthood holder that did what the prophet wanted, but he didn't necessarily always go to the meetings or preach, he was still considered a Mormon. Mormon parents in Frontier Utah were generally considered to be as kind to their children as other parenting standard norms in 19th century. Brigham Young was also known to preach parents to be kind and sort of spare the rod. He There's a great letter that he wrote to Mary Ann on June 12, 1844. This was as he was heading out on his mission right before Joseph Smith died. His letter says, quote, my, belov- my beloved wife, while I am waiting for the boat to go to Buffalo... I improve a few moments to writing to you. This is a pleasant evening on the lake, but I feel lonesome. Oh, that I had you with me this summer. I think I should be happy. Well, I am now because I am calling. I am in my calling and doing my duty. But the older I grow, the more I desire to stay at home instead of traveling. How I want to see you and the children. Kiss them for me and kiss Lucy twice or more. Tell her it is from me. Give my love to all the family. I do feel to bless you in the name of the Lord. End quote. 
While you can find many letters like this expressing fondness and affection for Mormon children on the side, you know, this this was common. Mormons did love and value their children. They were trying to establish the, the meaning of them. The reality was that a lot of Mormon children were neglected or overworked. The frontier was a really rugged place, and especially when the father was often gone on missions or on work for the church, uh, the children were really relied, relied on to do work. Often Mormons adopted, I'm using the quote in air quotes, adopted native children that they either bought, um, you know, like purchased from warring tribes or sometimes inherited. And this is a very complicated and intensive subject that will require its own episode. But I will say that it wasn't uncommon in the 1850s and early 1860s for Mormons to purchase or inherit Indian children for, from various means to be in their family. And these children were sometimes cared for better than they would be in, like, the tribe that kidnapped them. But in, in Compton's A Frontier Life about Jacob Hamblin, we see that some Indian children were integrated almost fully as children. I would say that that was rare. Hamblin was very sympathetic and progressive to indigenous Utah peoples. And he had an adopted son named Albert. Albert, um, was from the Paiute tribe. And in Compton's view, becomes, quote, fully more Mormon. He would take on Hamlin's spiritual gifts as well his, as his temporal duties. And Hamlin loved him and valued him. Other children usually didn't fare so well, though. They were considered a sort of indentured servant. And many of these children were considered and even called servants or apprentices in the house. And they were brought into the family to work. And many died young usually because of the issues that they dealt with before coming to the home, because, you know, their violent Ute captors were terrible, and there was such poverty, and there was such bad nourishment. And even in the Utah homes, often things improved, but maybe not that much. Again, this will be its own episode that we'll talk about later. So I gave you a lot of information talking a lot about Mormon households. So I hope you kind of understand what it would be like to be living in frontier Utah as a plural family. Just imagine yourself in this position and having your husband gone often. Remember, you couldn't just go to the store. Going into town sometimes meant a day or two journey. Sometimes it was a week. If you went to Salt Lake for things and you had a polygamous wife, you had to decide who you're going to choose and who you're going to leave behind. And this meant that children, if, if wives had to share time with husbands, imagine children and the sort of attention that they were given. If you had four wives and each wife had four to seven children, your, the more children that were born, the less and less time you would have with your father. So it's an interesting and complicated scenario, but, uh, Thank you for listening. I'm going to go ahead and stop this one. There's so much to talk about and we're still going to get into it. But I just wanted this episode to sort of contextualize some of the struggles. I really appreciate you listening and supporting it. If you feel compelled to support us, please leave a donation at feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org. The donations help keep me motivated. They help pay for server fees and they also help my family feel like it's worth our time. So, um, thank you for, for listening and for tuning in to another episode of the Year of Polygamy on the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast.